Marvel is considering changing the name of the X-Men films in order to be more woke and inclusive. According to reports, the company is currently reviewing other possible titles, such as X-Movies No One Wants to Watch Anymore, an X-Studio executive looking for job in real estate after this completely avoidable debacle. Marvel began contemplating taking the superhero franchise in a new, woke direction after several executives at the company snorted some blow and decided they were making too much money. They had originally considered just raking all the X-Men profits into a big pile and setting it on fire, but that apparently would have violated anti-pollution laws, and so the company began to look for other ways to be unbearably stupid without damaging the environment. As one Hollywood insider put it, quote, The movie industry wants very much to make the world a better place. But to do that, we'd have to stop sexually harassing our interns, diddling underage boys at Encino pool parties, and selling perversion and immorality to the nation's impressionable young. And of course, that's not going to happen, so we'll do this meaningless language crap instead. Unquote. The central problem with calling X-Men X-Men lies in the fact that according to woke philosophy, X-Men would now be women. Unless they were X-Women in which case they would be men until they decided to become women again when they would be X-Men and the title could remain the same. Even so, many members of the X-Men audience have noticed that some of the X-Men have strangely alluring shapes in their skin-tight costumes, though no one is willing to say what these oddly stimulating shapes might mean since some of these inexplicably arousing and curvaceous superheroes might not want to be referred to as she or her, but might instead prefer to use such pronouns as painfully diluted or wackadoodle-doo. One person who agrees with the X-Men name change is skin-tight costume-wearing actress Lola Vavoom, who plays the role of X-Men superhero Skin Tight, whose, super ha- whose superpower is filling out a skin-tight costume. Ms. Vavoom says, quote, It's about time Hollywood stops sexualizing women. That way, I won't have a career anymore and can maybe get married and have some kids. Who knows? I might even learn to cook and give up antidepressants, unquote. (laughs) As Marvel continued to consider the name change and search for other ways to take away every last ounce of fun and pleasure out of the superhero franchise, screenwriters scrambled to come up with new woke storylines. One scenario, for instance, has Commissioner Gordon piercing the night sky over Gotham City with his new virtue signal, causing a group of cartoonishly one-dimensional characters in outlandish outfits to come out of their fortresses of solitude and use different words to describe things before returning to Encino to diddle underage boys. And please don't write me emails. I already know that I'm not describing the Marvel Universe. I'm describing the real one. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. So I have been really looking forward to today's interview. I've been arguing for a long time that uh, atheists are basically trapped in the 20th century, that their philosophy has become scientifically obsolete. And I just read a terrific book called The Return of the God Hypothesis by Stephen C. Meyer. Uh, Stephen Meyer directs the Discovery Institute uh, the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture in Seattle is a former geophysicist. He's written bestsellers, Darwin's Doubt, uh, The Explosive Origin of Animal Life and the Case for Intelligent Design, Signature in the Cell, and his latest uh, is the USA Today bestseller, Return of the God Hypothesis, which I read. I just think it's terrific. Steve, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Andrew, for having me on. It's a great privilege. It is uh, it's it's a ter- it's a terrific book. It really is. It's it's rigorous. It's not uh, tendentious. You don't just say what you want to be true. You make your arguments really clearly. Uh, I want to talk before we get into the argument. The s- subtitle of the book is "The Three Discoveries That Have Brought the God Hypothesis Back into Play." 
And before we get to those three discoveries, the fact that you call it the return of the God hypothesis suggests that there was a time when maybe it was it made more sense not to hypothesize that God uh, had created the world or that God was at work in the world. Why is that the case? Yeah, you mentioned that uh, atheism is uh, stuck in the 20th century. I think it's actually stuck in the late 19th century, which is when the uh, <laughs> uh, worldview known as scientific materialism was really formulated. There were you know, the great scientific materialists were Darwin, who told us where we came from, uh, Marx, who gave us a utopian vision of where we were going, Freud, who uh, a little bit later told us what to do about the human condition, about human guilt. And between these great materialistic thinkers, all of whom claim to be basing their ideas on science, um, a kind of comprehensive worldview was formulated that answered all the great questions that Judeo-Christian religion had always addressed. And, uh, and this became kind of the default way of thinking through much of the 20th century uh, among elite intellectuals. And it had, it, it, it had uh, I think, uh, some tragic consequences because it was also the, the mode of thinking that underlay the great totalitarian regimes of the 20th century as well. Um, uh, both Marxism and National Socialism derived tremendous amount of support from a, basically materialistic assumptions, in some cases even directly going back to Darwinian thinking. So. Um, the uh, the re the title "Return of the God Hypothesis" invites a kind of uh, story, obviously, because to say it's returning was to say that the, the God Hypothesis, as the framework for doing science, was lost. But that implies that previous to that, it was also the dominant way of thinking about the natural world, as indeed it was during the period that historians call the Scientific Revolution. Yeah, this, I mean, the Scientific Revolution. You make you make this argument very clearly in the book, uh, "The Return of the God Hypothesis," that that it's really inspired in some way by Christian, specifically Christian thought. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, I think so. And also also Judeo-Christian thought, because during the period of the scientific revolution, and that's dated variously by historians of science between, say, 1500 and 1700 or 1750, some go back and see very strong influences that gave rise to modern science in the late medieval period as well, going back as far as 1300 or so in the great universities like University of Paris and Oxford. Um, but um, during this period of late medieval Catholic thought and uh, the, uh, the period of the Reformation, uh, Christian thinkers were rediscovering the Hebrew Bible, and there were a number of concepts that were uh, implicit in, a, in the biblical worldview that were friendly to the rise of science. The biggest one was the idea of intelligibility, the idea that nature could be understood because it, by the human mind because it, uh, it, it expressed a rationality that was the product of the divine mind, and that that same divine creator who had built rationality and design and order into nature had also designed our minds in a way that allowed us to understand that order and design. And so there was a principle of correspondence between the reason that was built into nature and the reason within us. And it, it, it kind of goes beyond the Greek idea of reason, too, because there's a certain I don't I don't know. It's I, I don't want to call it randomness, but freedom in God's work. I mean, he can do whatever he wants. So it's up to us to That's go out and look at it. That was a huge concept. Uh, the historians of science call that contingency, the idea that nature has an order that's built into it, but it's an order that's contingent upon the will of the creator. It could have been otherwise, just as there are many different ways to make a timepiece or a clock, um, all of which would require a, a kind of orderly arrangement of the gears and parts that make timekeeping possible. Um, there are many different ways that God could have ordered the universe, and it's up to us not to uh, deduce that order from some first principles or from some in intuitions that we have about how nature ought to be, 
but rather it's important to go out and look and see how nature actually is. The Greeks were inclined to a kind of armchair philosophizing about nature, and during the period of the scientific revolution, because of this idea of the radical contingency of nature upon the will of God, this was a, a consequence of the recovery of the doctrine of creation. Nature is orderly, but it's orderly because God chose to make it a certain way. And Robert Boyle put it very succinctly. He said, it's not the job of the natural philosopher, which was what people called scientists at the time, to uh, deduce what God must have done. But instead, it's the job of the scientist to go out and look and see what God actually did do. So in addition to uh, having a confidence that there's an intelligibility in nature, there was also the idea that, um, that nature... Um, needed to be studied in an empirical way. We needed to investigate it by looking and seeing and measuring. And, and this gave rise to an empirical form of science rather than deductive, as I mentioned, armchair philosophizing, which characterized a lot of Greek thought. So so let's talk about these three discoveries that kind of, I mean, it, it feels like it might have been natural after Newton to just assume that a clockwork universe was going to unfold uh, that was just very uh, easy to understand. But in fact, things turned out to be a little weirder than that. And one of the first things you talk about is the idea of a Big Bang, which really does make things complicated. Can you describe, first of all, where did that idea come from and, and why does it make things complicated for scientific materials? Well, there's a, there's a, a Princeton physicist uh, from the 1960s, Robert Dickey, who said that the, an infinitely old universe would relieve us of the necessity of understanding the origin of matter at any finite time in the past. And um, it, it coming out of the late 19th century, Physicists assumed that the universe was infinitely old, that it was e essentially eternal and self-existent and self-organizing. And, um, and so there was, that made possible this great materialistic synthesis at the end of the 19th century. We could explain the origin of everything all the way back to the elementary particles, and the elementary particles and energy had been here from eternity past. And so matter and energy were essentially had godlike powers. They, they were the eternal self-existent thing that replaced the idea of an eternal self-existent creator in, in, in Christianity and Judaism. Um, so the surprising, shocking discovery of the early 20th century was that in fact, the mater material universe, the physical universe of matter, space, time, and energy seems as best we can tell to have had a beginning. And this was first, uh, the, the first inklings of this came in the 1920s in observational astronomy as uh, figures like Ed Edwin Hubble uh, were able to establish that the light coming from distant galaxies was being stretched out as if the distant galaxies were receding away from us. And uh, Hubble's graduate student, uh, Alan Sandage and others were able to verify that this was the case in, in all quadrants of the night sky. And the picture that emerged from this was of an expanding universe outward from a kind of starting point, a, a beginning. And uh, this was a kind of shocking discovery because everyone expected that the universe was eternal and self-existent. Einstein didn't like it at first, though his own theory of gravity called general rel relativity implied the same thing. He later did come around though when, the, when confronted with the evidence. And then you, you have this uh, idea, I think you call it the Goldilocks universe. Is that your term for it? That um, it's not just that it, it starts, but it starts with some really amazing coincidences uh, wrapped into its, into its very organization. Yeah, physicists call this the fine-tuning, and some physicists refer to our universe now as a Goldilocks universe. The basic parameters of the universe, the, the force that drives the expansion, the force of gravity, the force of electromagnetism, the underlying uh, strong and weak nuclear forces, the, the masses of the elementary particles, the speed of light, many, many basic physical parameters fall within very narrow tolerances, such that if they were a little bit different, a little bit stronger or weaker or heavier or lighter, 
the universe uh, would not be conducive to life. And the probabilities of associated with in these individual parameters, let alone the whole ensemble, are incredibly tiny. And yet there's no underlying physical uh, reason, theoretical or physical reason, as to why these parameters should be have the precise values that they do. And uh, and this is this is known to physicists now as the problem of the fine tuning. Uh, and uh, many physicists, including Sir Fred Hoyle, who was initially a big skeptic of the Big Bang because of his atheism, came around to theism himself because of fine-tuning parameters that he discovered associated with the, uh, the, the necessary abundance of carbon in the universe, which is necessary to life. And uh, he was later quoted as saying that uh, a common-sense interpretation of the evidence suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology. So uh, in, or, in order to make life possible. Uh, so this fine tuning suggested a fine tuner. Uh, there have been contrary uh, hypotheses, uh, su such as the multiverse that's being floated uh, now and sometimes makes it into popular movies. But one thing that's um, not commonly known about the multiverse, uh, and that's just the idea that there are billions of other universes out there, such that uh, somewhere, some universe would get lucky and have th those improbable parameters. Problem is all the mechanisms that physicists have proposed to explain where these other universes have come from have themselves required prior unexplained fine tuning, taking us right back to where we started. Mm -hmm. So the multiverse actually doesn't explain the fine tuning and fine tuning in our experience, whether we're talking about Swiss watches or internal combustion engines or sections of digital code is always an indicator of intelligence or the activity of mind. It's funny, these guys who are constantly citing uh, Occam's razor to say that things should be simple, make this argument of the multiverse, which is kind of like saying this just happens to be the card game in which I drew four aces in a, you know, seven times in a row. I mean, it just it, it seems a very complex way of thinking about things as opposed to just saying, well, maybe there's a creator. It's very convoluted and more more convoluted than I can describe in a short interview because there, there are two different uh, uh, systems of theoretical physics that have to be invoked to explain the 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 the, the phenomena that this a single postulate of a transcendent intelligence can explain. You have to posit all these different multi, uh, universes as well as all these different theoretical entities like multiple multi dimensions of space, strings, uh, inflaton fields in order to explain the, the, the one thing that a single hypothesis of a transcendent creator explains very simply. So it's not a parsimonious or simple explanation, the multiverse. The other, the final uh, of the three discoveries is this idea, it's, it's kind of interesting because one of the guys who's supposed to be the four horsemen of the apocalypse of the new atheist is Richard Dawkins, an excellent writer, uh, obviously a brilliant man, and it's all about evolution for him, and evolution explains so much of where life comes from. But the but the idea of a code of a um, of a genetic code that creates intelligence has has caused some computer scientists to say that Darwinian absolute Darwinian evolution can't be right. Is that is that a is that a fair way? Well, to put abs it? Am I getting absolutely. That right? I mean, it, and this is the huge discovery of late twentieth century science and biology, and that is that at the foundation of life and even the simplest living cells, we find an exquisite realm of digital nanotechnology. It started with Watson and Crick in 1953 when they elucidated the double helix uh, structure of the DNA. Five years later, Crick formulated something he called the sequence hypothesis in which he <laughs> suggested that the 
chemical subunits along the interior of the DNA molecule are functioning like alphabetic characters in a written language or the zeros and ones in a machine code or digital software that we would work with today. Richard Dawkins himself has acknowledged that DNA functions like a machine code. Bill Gates says it's uh, like a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever created. Um, And that's a highly suggestive Uh, remark because we know from experience that software comes from programmers and that information, especially in a digital or alphabetic form, always comes from an intelligent source, whether we're talking about a hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or information embedded in a radio signal or in a computer code. Information is the product of mind. And so the discovery of information at the foundation of life and even the simplest living cell, I've argued, is a powerful indicator of a designing intelligence playing a role in the origin and history of life. We're talking about a remarkable book called The Return of the God Hypothesis uh, by Stephen C. Meyer. Uh, really well-argued scientific book, not a theological book, a scientific book. I have a question that I'd like to ask about quantum physics. I'm glad, since I have you here, I'll take advantage of the uh, Let's take presence. a walk on the wild uh, you side. Know, yeah. the, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you touch on this in the later chapters of the book, but it's not one of your three uh, discoveries. But the idea in quantum, there is this idea in quantum physics that th- things are defined by our perception of them to some degree so that uh, we can't tell the location and velocity of a, of something before it is observed. And once it's observed, it maintains uh, that position. Uh, we can't tell whether a, a light is a wave or a particle until it's observed. And then once it's observed, uh, it remains a wave or a particle, it seems. It's, that sort of Im- implies to me that consciousness comes before matter. That the words in the Bible that the earth was without form or void, was was void and without form, and God said, let there be light, could almost be literally true, that there has to be some consciousness before there can be some element there. Is that that completely uh, wrong? Many philosophers have actually... You know, I think it's a very profound insight. Uh, my colleague George Gilder says that the heart of matter lies a mystery. You know, that ma- you know, we don't we don't perceive matter without perception, with a without a perceiver. And one of the, the reasons I brought up the quantum mechanics in this book was that there is a model of the origin of the universe known as quantum cosmology, which attempts to. Um, appropriate the mathematics of quantum physics to explain how you can get a universe from literally nothing physical. But the problem with the appropriation of that mathematics is that it presupposes a mathematical structure to the universe before there's any matter. But mathematics is something, as one of the proponents of this idea uh, has acknowledged, mathematics is conceptual. It only exists in minds. So the attempt to explain the origin of the universe apart from the mind of God uh, using quantum mechanics has actually brought people back full circle to the need for a pre-existing mind, the very insight that you've just you've just shared. Oh, good. I'm glad I wasn't just making that up because obviously I do not understand. I don't pretend to understand quantum mechanics, but uh, it seems like that to me. You know, you quote, you have this There's a remarkable wonderful, oh, quote sorry. from Thomas... Oh, yeah. yeah, I was just uh, interrupting with a, uh, a little bit. But uh, there's a, a, a terrific quote from Hawking about this very problem. He was one of the inventors of this quantum cosmology idea. But uh, in a moment of candor, he says, what puts fire in the equations that gives them a, a universe to describe? Math by itself is causally inert. It's only something that exists in a mind. We use math to structure things, to design things. But um, the, the whole attempt, it's, it's, it's really an ironic story because the, the evidence we have for the beginning of the universe seems to imply 
a cause that transcends matter, space, time, and energy. Before the beginning of matter, there is no matter to do the causing. And in virtue of that, scientists have looked for some alternative to the God hypothesis. They've come up with this quantum cosmological model, but it too implies a prior unexplained uh, mental reality that is not material in order to explain the origin of the universe. So they come right back, I think, to the God hypothesis and the attempt to avoid it. Yeah, this brings me back to this really remarkable quote from Thomas Nagel, uh, who is a philosopher who wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos and made a big splash called Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False, got attacked by all kinds of people. But you quote Nagel. Nagel does not believe in God, and he came up with an alternative hypothesis to that. But he said, I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't right it's just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right. It's that I hope there is no, I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I, I was really struck by that because I felt that way about some of the things that Stephen Hawking used to say, that he was committed to this idea that there wasn't a God, that he was as committed as some religious people who know nothing but just what they believe. Why is that? Why aren't scientists open to what seems to me such a simple explanation uh, of the world we, as we actually know it scientifically. And there's so many different things to say about that, Andrew. Um, <laughs> first of all, that Nagel's candor is just so refreshing. And um, he he uh, went out on a limb to write some very nice things about some of the books advancing the theory of intelligent design, though he couldn't quite go that far himself. He was an atheist who was sort of experiencing cognitive dissonance, uh, understanding that neo-Darwinism and materialistic ideas did not account for the really fundamental one of the fundamental things about our existence, which is the reality of consciousness, the reality of minds, we have them. So we know mind exists. And if you can't account for that, you have a worldview that is inadequate. Um, I think that, you know, part of the answer to the why can't science or why are scientists so wedded or many scientists so wedded to atheism? I think it's partly a kind of default way of thinking that we've inherited from the, the 19th century. And there's a sort of groupthink phenomena that is involved in any community of 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 uh, scholars or thinkers. And uh, but also, I think there's a natural human uh, resistance to the God hypothesis. On the one hand, we like we would like God to exist because we want to think about the possibility of a life after this life, about uh, significance. We don't want, want to think of ourselves as cosmic accidents. So we have a, a motivation to consider the God hypothesis. But none of us also, I think, instinctively like the accountability that comes with thinking about a, a transcendent intelligence who made us to function best in a certain way and that therefore there's a moral law and we may not be on the right side of that all the time. So there's a push-pull, I think, in every human being about whether we want or don't want God to exist. Uh, what I tried to do in the book was to extricate ourselves from those motivational questions and issues and just look at what the evidence says. And uh, Dawkins is so helpful because he has this tremendous quote. He's great at forming, uh, framing issues, even though I disagree with his atheism. But he says, the universe has exactly the properties we should expect. If at bottom there's no purpose, no design, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. In other words, materialism. And what I tried to show in the book is that there have been three major discoveries about biological, physical, and cosmological origins that are precisely what you wouldn't expect if uh, scientific materialism or scientific atheism were true. The universe had a beginning. It's been finely tuned from the beginning for life. And since the beginning, there have been big infusions or bursts of uh, digital information technology in our living, uh, in our biosphere that suggests a master programmer has been at work in life. None of these things were expected on the scientific atheist view of the late 19th century. And that's the view that we've inherited that's dominated the 20th. 
Uh, if you like science books, uh, this is a terrific one, The Return of the God Hypothesis by Stephen C. Myers. Steve, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew, and thanks for great questions. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe, too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thank you for listening. For the first time, CNN has interviewed a former member of Chinese security forces who tells CNN he was routinely ordered to arrest and torture Uyghur detainees in truly horrific and barbaric ways. China denies accusations from the United States that it has detained up to 2 million Uyghurs, many of them Muslim, in a system of modern-day internment camps in the Xinjiang region in northwestern China. CNN's Ivan Watson brings us uh, these disturbing new revelations, and we want to warn our viewers, it contains graphic descriptions of violence and sexual assault. They would touch the electric stick here, and it's, it's just, just like burning. This is the story of a victim and a self-confessed torturer. Did the police officers use electric batons to shock prisoners? Yeah. Yes, everyone uses different methods. For years, stories of arbitrary arrests, unspeakable cruelty, and mass internment camps have been trickling out of China's Xinjiang region. Testimonies from people like Abdueli Ayyub. When you were detained in 2013, what was your main job? A kindergarten teacher. Abdueli says police took him from his Uyghur language kindergarten. Uh, put black hood on my face and they put me in a, the, this is the interrogation room. And inside the iron cage, there's a tiger chair. Your like, uh, wrist shackled there and your like, uh, feet also shackled. He says police accused him of espionage, plotting against the Chinese government, and the crime of separatism. And they demanded a confession. You just confess. You just admit what you have done. It's good for you. Now, for the very first time, CNN has spoken to a former Chinese police officer who claims his job was to arrest and extract confessions from ethnic Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Some cops would play the good cops, and some would play the bad cops. After we beat them, we'd offer them a cigarette. Did you have to be the bad cop sometimes? Of course. The man, who asks to be called Jiang, says he worked more than 10 years as a cop before fleeing China after growing disillusioned with the ruling Communist Party. I met him in a European country. He wore his police uniform to authenticate his story, but does not want to be identified to protect himself and relatives who are still in China. To prove that he was a Chinese police officer, Jiang is showing me many photos of different police badges, training certificates, even portraits of his graduating class at police academy, images that we cannot show on television because they would reveal his identity. Jiang says he was sent from his home province to work in Xinjiang at least three times, during which he was ordered to arrest hundreds of suspects all of them ethnic Uyghurs. 
How were the interrogations being conducted? Beat them. Kick them. Beat them bruised and swollen. Knock their heads on the radiator. Police would step on the suspect's face and tell him to confess. Jiang says some suspects were as young as 14, and all of the detainees were beaten. Were the suspects all men? Men and women. Did you witness women being beaten? Yes. CNN cannot independently confirm Jiang's allegations, nor those of Abdullahi, the kindergarten teacher, who says in addition to beatings, he was raped on his first night of detention by Chinese prisoners who followed the orders of prison guards. It's really bad. This was prisoners who sexually assaulted you? Yeah, the prisoners. More than one? More than one. It's, yeah, like, just, uh, first of all, they surrounded me, and the police there ordered me to, to like, uh, take off my uh, underwear and let me... And bend like over. This, bend, bend over. Don't do this, don't do this, I, I, I cried. Please don't do this. And then like uh, one of, I don't know, just hold my hand like this. this. Jiang, the police officer who fled China, describes in graphic detail methods of sexual torture that he says police officers used. If you want people to confess, you use the electric baton. We would tie two electrical wires on the tips and set the wires on their genitals while the person is tied up. The result is better. He also says police sometimes ordered prisoners to sexually assault detainees. We call it an in-prison investigation. The Chinese government insists it is battling violent extremism in Xinjiang. Beijing also denies any human rights abuses whatsoever are being committed there. I want to reiterate that the so-called genocide in Xinjiang is nothing but a rumor backed by ulterior motives and an outright lie. But Jiang, the whistleblower cop, says he got double his normal salary to join tens of thousands of other police sent to Xinjiang as part of the government crackdown. How many of the people that you arrested in Xinjiang do you think were actually violent extremists? None. None. Xinjiang is not a war zone, and those people are our fellow citizens, not foreign enemies. If you didn't carry out the arrests, what would happen to you? Then I would be arrested as well, because that means I too am a part of a terrorist organization. I become their enemy. Abdullahi says after 15 months in detention, he confessed to illegal fundraising and was released. He later fled China. Since then, he says several of his relatives have been detained, including his niece, Mehrai. Where was your niece held? The same detention facility I stayed. I don't know how she died. I don't even know. She is the... She is the first one I, I hold. She is the first baby I hold in my life. She's just like my daughter. In response to Britain questions from CNN, the Xinjiang government denies that Mirai died in detention, saying the 30-year-old woman instead died of organ failure due to severe anemia after being treated in a hospital after suffering from an unknown illness. 
The Chinese government did not respond to written questions concerning allegations made by the former police officer. Abdulwali now lives in Norway with his family and publishes children's books written in Uyghur. He insists he can forgive the men who jailed and tortured him. I don't hate them because uh, all of them victim of that system. If you met one of these prisoners, what would you say to them? I'm scared. I would leave immediately. Why? How do I face these people? You'd feel guilty, even if you're just a soldier. You're still responsible for what happened. Yes, you need to execute orders, but so many people did this thing together. We are responsible for this.